1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Matthew E. Ferris. Matt is the author of the recently published book, If One Uses It Lawfully, The Law of Moses and the Christian Life, recently released by Whitfenstock in 2018. Matt, congratulations on the book and welcome to the
0: show. Thank you Crawford, I'm glad to be here.
1: It's great to have you on the show. You've written a fascinating book, but before we begin to talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself
0: sure so i um I am a member of a local church and uh I've been active in the study of scripture really since uh the time of my conversion shortly after college um, and i I make my living in information technology, but I've always been um, a student both of scripture and of church history and so um, that's really, uh, what I'm about. I'm, uh, active in, uh, teaching Bible studies in the local church, uh, in, uh, Bible study fellowship and, uh, other ministries. Uh, my training actually is, uh, as a musician. And so I've been active in music ministry in various congregations as well. And really the, um, um, this topic has, has been one that's occupied me, I, I would say for Really most of my Christian life. Um, so that's, you know, at, at this, uh, I guess, late date, um, I finally decided to write about it.
1: Now, this is not your first publication, is it?
0: No. Uh, so my my first book uh, is a book called Evangelicals Adrift. The subtitle is uh, Supplanting Scripture with Sacramentalism. And that book really grew out of uh, a desire to address um Evangelical converts into either Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, um, and uh, at various points, this is certainly not a uh, a tide, if you will, but a, a trickle, I guess you'd say, of evangelicals who, for various reasons, are dissatisfied with what they find in the diversity within evangelicalism and. To Taking a look uh, across the Tiber, if you will, or across the Bosphorus in the case of the Eastern Orthodox and saying that I think what I see over there makes more sense. And so, uh, evangelicals who convert, um, I contend are, are making certain assumptions, which I believe are not true. And so that book was to address, uh, how scripture is in fact sufficient, how it addresses those concerns. And really it was a, a plea to look at both. Scripture and history, and if one does that, uh, I think the argument for for making that move is a weak one, and that uh, the scriptures retain their authority and their sufficiency um, despite the acknowledged difficulties and diversity within evangelicalism, so that was my first book
1: now, just listening to that description of that project, listeners will be aware that you're writing. From a position of commitment, Matt, uh, and, and you bring that commitment into this new book as well, if one uses it lawfully, the law of Moses and the Christian life. Um, if in that earlier project you were thinking about relationships or theological debates between traditions within the new book, you're thinking about a debate within evangelicalism or within uh popular Protestantism, born-again Protestantism, however you might want to describe that. What What is the background to this new book, if one uses it lawfully, the law of Moses and the Christian life?
0: Right. So I guess I'd say um, the background is, is my own study and experience, and, and over the course of some 30 years of being a Christian, I would hear uh, various people talk about the law and all points on the Protestant spectrum acknowledge that salvation is apart from the law. It's not by the works of the law. It's by faith alone, by grace alone. And so there never was really any disagreement on that. But then various traditions would quickly say, but we still as Christians must obey the law. We do retain an obligation to the law. Uh, and that, as I read scripture, never really squared with what I read paul saying both in romans and galatians chiefly um as to the christian's position regarding law and so it was really a desire to uh parse that issue and to figure out what various traditions were saying why they were saying it and it, as you say in the first book and in this book as well um i am i am taking a position um it it is it is polemic although i I trust i'm ironic in in how i present other views um i i don't uh you know i acknowledge uh those who disagree with me on my position as brothers in christ uh so that's not that's not really a question there but it's really what does the new testament say about the law um the discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant i found to be not um, in some traditions, what some were saying about that discontinuity, I could not square with what I find in the New Testament. So it was really an attempt to uh, put on paper uh, what I saw the New Testament saying, as well as interact with the scholars uh, um, through various traditions and examine what they were saying, why they believe uh, what they were saying about the law. and and does that match with what we read in the New Testament? So it was really a, a desire to kind of examine this question from all angles and then come up with some coherent statement of what then is our relationship as New Testament believers? What is our relationship to the law of Moses? This is, this so a, that's what I...
1: It's a big question, Matt, isn't it? And it's one that engages congregations at at that level but it's also one that engages scholars as well Um, the footnotes uh, to this book demonstrate your commitment to situate this particular discussion within quite a broad range in conversation which stretches across New Testament scholarship right the way through into theological um, scholarship as well. What is the, the general state of the field on this issue particularly of Paul and the law?
0: i guess the answer to that is it depends on who you ask right um if you look at um various uh scholars within the reformed tradition and and truly reformed or how however one wants to to parse that let's say confessionally reformed right um there's been i think a fairly uh, uniform and consistent position about the place of the law in the Christian life. And that, uh, is really expressed, uh, in some of the confessions, the Westminster confession, chiefly that, that we do retain some obligation to, to the law. Um, if you move into the Lutheran sphere, you get a little different flavor. There's more of a, of a break, if you will, uh, less dependence on the third use. Um, again, depending on who you want to read, uh, Luther himself, I think you'd have to say was, um, inconsistent on the question. He appears to have put forth only two uses of the law, but then you find other statements that he makes where he is, um, adamant about, uh, the value of the 10 commandments, uh, you know, his treaties against the antinomians, for example. So, and then when you come into, um, other parts of evangelicalism, um, some have labeled, uh, the position, uh, hyper grace, right? Where absolutely no, um, no use of the law is to be found. We are completely severed from the law and all it does is kill and accuse and so um across that spectrum right you have various scholars uh, arguing vociferously that this is the one way to see the law and so um the position that i argue for in the book is um is one where the christian is free from obligation to the law but that because that is the case it doesn't mean that the law has no use for us today uh i think when some people hear that position there's almost a knee-jerk reaction uh, of marcionism if you will and so then are we throwing out the whole old testament i don't say that at all um i find great value in the old testament um if understood in its covenant context and if understood in the unfolding of salvation history if you will so that's a, I guess, a brief survey of it. One aspect you may be wondering about, and I'll, I'll just anticipate that, is that the whole uh, new perspective on Paul. Uh, I, I think I, I deemed that to be outside the scope of what I was trying to address, because for the most part, I think that the new perspective really deals with the question of justification: is the law simply boundary markers uh to keep uh ethnic differences and all of that in place um and that you know second temple judaism was really a a gracious uh faith uh not uh, you know in opposition to what one traditionally thinks of as the reformational understanding of the law and so what I'm focused on really is less the question of justification and more the question of sanctification. Right? As I mentioned, everyone agrees that justification does not come by keeping the law, but then when we talk about living the Christian life, um, sanctification, if you will, that's where there's more disagreement um, among uh, evangelicals among Reformed.
1: Now, Matt, it's possible that someone could could read your book if one uses it lawfully, the law of Moses and the Christian life, and and wonder perhaps why they don't come across the word dispensational more often. Uh, could you tell I... us a little bit about what, what is dispensationalism? How does dispensationalism relate to this question of the third use of the law, the, the, the relevance of the law for um, sanctification, and perhaps why you've chosen not to use that word except once when it crops up in a quotation?
0: I... I think one of the reasons that I did choose to not use the word um, is because it, it tends to be um, a, a, a knee jerk or a polemical word. I think that when people hear the word dispensational, they have a lot of connotations with it. Um, they have a lot of baggage, if you will, that goes along with that. Uh, those connotations, I don't think are directly related to the questions that I'm dealing with. And so, uh, that's probably one reason, um, that I chose not to use it. Uh, things like, and I still encounter this from time to time, uh, where people will say that dispensationalism teaches two ways of salvation. One way under the law, another way under grace. And I think a number of, uh, adherents of dispensationalism have addressed that and and said that that is decidedly not the case Um, i guess the other uh reason i i chose not to really highlight it is i i think that if one looks at the texts uh, and the principal texts around this um you can arrive at the position that i'm advocating for uh Quite apart from saying this is a dispensational position, I do think, however, that um, these things tend to be uh, package deals, right? So, for example, one of the things that I put forth in the book is that the law was given to Israel. And by that, I mean the seed of Jacob, the nation of Israel. And so one can look at that and say, well, I see a distinction between Israel and the church. I do that is typically a hallmark of dispensationalism. If one sees that distinction, if one sees the law as given only to the seed of Jacob, uh, and thus Israel is distinct, then that tends to go along with seeing um the believer in the new covenant, in the new Testament as free from obligation to the law. And so I think, in some sense you've you've uh perhaps ferreted this out that as you read what i wrote a lot of the positions that i'm taking one could say well this is this would fit into a dispensational view of this and i i i don't disagree with that but i wouldn't say that um one has to say up front this is a dispensational position i i prefer to argue it from the text of Scripture, and to show how uh this position is in fact what what Paul teaches.
1: Now, Matt, you've very helpfully set up a, an, an interpretive context there for the book. How would you summarize what the book itself is arguing?
0: Sure. So I I would say that there are a few principal arguments I'm making. Probably the, the chief one is that. Um uh, the believer in the new covenant does not retain an obligation to the law of Moses. Um, that because of our position in Christ, uh, as Paul says to the Colossians that we have died with Christ, been raised with him and we are seated with him. Um, that the law, since it was given under the old covenant, we are now under the new covenant. And the law, since it was given to the seed of Jacob and not to the church. Those are a couple of reasons why it doesn't retain an obligation for us. Um, the other point that I make is that, and this is where the title of the book comes in from 1 Timothy one where Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so I contend really that the third use of the law as traditionally understood Is in fact an unlawful use of the law. Uh, Paul is, you know, and he's employing a pun there when he says, uh, "If one uses it lawfully." But I think that everything that Paul says about the law uh, prevents us from seeing the law as a standard of behavior, a standard of holiness for the Christian now. And I think that there are uh, certain um uh, dangers inherent in that position uh and i try to interact with the scholars who who put that forth show from uh from paul's answers why that's not the case um i think one of the chief things that this rests upon that is the third use of the law is the so-called divisions of the law into moral civil and ceremonial and of course uh, across the, the, those who advocate for uh, a continuing obligation to the law. Uh, uniformly say that the the civil law and the ceremonial law are are dispensed with. We we don't retain any obligation to that. It's only the moral law that uh, we still are obligated to. But the moral law then has to be defined, and typically is defined as synonymous with the Ten Commandments. But one of the points I make is that the laws, as given. Uh, It is a unit. The law is a unit and it cannot be divided. And so elsewhere, outside of the Ten Commandments, you'll find many laws given to Israel that are are moral in nature. And so can someone look at um, some of the laws, for example, about not exacting uh, excessive interest from fellow Israelites and say, well, that's not a moral law. Or can someone look at the laws about, um, uh, treating orphans and widows, uh, charitably and say, well, that's not a moral law. And so they're all mixed together. And so to say, well, it's only the 10 commandments that comprise the moral law, I think does an injustice to the fabric of the law. And in fact, when Paul talks about the law and his, uh, an hour death to it in romans 7 um there in 7 4 he says you also my brothers have died to the law so that you might to another just beyond that when he talks about the law's effect on him and how he would not have known what sin is except the law said you shall not covet he uses the tenth commandment so he's using uh a a part of the moral law if you will to show how that moral law slew him and aroused sin within him. And so I'm arguing chiefly that while the law is good, we are not. And so the position of the believer as now died and raised anew with Christ puts us in a completely different realm. Uh, The law's um, spiritual home, if you will, is those in Adam and its covenantal home is Israel. And because the New Testament believer is no longer positionally in Adam, we are under the headship of Christ, and we never were part of ethnic Israel, those two things are among the reasons why the law does not retain an obligation to us. Um, So you know, I think, uh, I don't know if uh, over uh, in in Ireland, you, you have this, uh, carnival game called High Striker, where you may have seen it at, at, uh, a fair or something. You go and you pay, uh, a bit of money and you are given a, a massive mallet to strike something. Um, it shoots, uh, a piece of metal up a, up a pole to ring the bell, right? And if you are strong enough and you ring the bell, you hit it hard enough you'll ring the bell at the top right and so the top is the goal right that's let's say it's 100 and so the way I depict it is that the holiness that believers are now called to is beyond the law the law is not inconsistent with the holiness that Christians are now called to but it's if you think of that high striker it's maybe 70 on the scale whereas Christlikeness is is 100 that is quote ringing the bell unquote and so that's perhaps the the other major tenant in this view that i dispute that is that the law and the moral law the 10 commandments if you will represent the highest expression of god's will for believers and i reject that as inconsistent with what we find in the new testament when jesus says uh, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That is that is way beyond anything we find in the law. So uh, those are some of the some of the high points of, of what I'm arguing um, for why uh, a third use, why obligation to the law for Christians, why measuring our Christian lives by the law uh, really falls short of what the Apostle Paul is, is pointing us to.
1: Now, Matt, in the book you make a distinction between keeping the law and fulfilling the law. What are you getting at there?
0: Right. Yes. Um I'm getting at, I guess, the way I see Paul um using the law. And so one of the one of the key passages that people usually go to when I present this view is Romans 13, where Paul quotes several of the Ten Commandments and he says. You know, love is the fulfilling of the law. And people will go to that passage and say, you see, Paul is is telling us to obey the law here. But if you look carefully at what he says, he never says, therefore, you must obey these commandments. He uses the, the Ten Commandments almost as a springboard to his larger point, and that is to love one another. Right. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law and so consistently in the new testament paul points to love as the fulfillment of the law but he never tells believers that they need to keep the law and i think that gets to this distinction um, that love is really the goal in the christian life and if i am loving my neighbor as myself I really don't have to worry about fulfilling about keeping the law because the law's requirements, which I see as holiness, will be fulfilled by my loving my neighbor as Jesus has called me to beyond what the law says. And I I would add that this um, that position is not unique to me. Uh, It's not uh, something that I've just come up with. Um, one of the writers that I quote in the book is Brian Rosner, who teaches at Moore College in Sydney. And his excellent book, Paul and the Law in the uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series, is a great look at this. And, and that is also one of the points that he brings out that the fulfilling the law, uh, is distinct from keeping the law. Christians are called to fulfill the law through love, but they're never called to keep the law. And that that distinction is an important one because it continually points us beyond the law and to the Lord Jesus and his example.
1: Now, you've got a full chapter in the book, Matt, on the use of the Ten Commandments within the New Testament. But can we move beyond that just to think about the title of the book itself, which, of course, is that quotation from um, 1 Timothy, if one uses it lawfully, the law of Moses in the Christian life? Right. at the end of the book, how then do you consider this question? What is the lawful use of the law?
0: Sure so um, in the in the epilogue i I attempt to sort of bring all those strands together and talk about that question how, how then should we regard the law and there's a few things I think we can say first of all, the law and I, I talk about this in one of the earlier chapters when when the word law appears in scripture it has a variety of meanings right it can mean a commandment a statute it can mean the first five books of the bible the pentateuch in some cases it can mean the entire old testament um and in certain edge cases it it can be as a synonym for the word principle or rule right so there's a variety of, of ways that we can use the law and so all of those come into bearing when we talk about what how should Christians regard the law? One way, I think, when we think about its uh, being given to Israel is that the law is a record of God's faithfulness to his covenant people, that when he brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, the Ten Commandments was the treaty document of their relationship with God uh, from that point. And this is something that other writers have pointed out as well. So that's why the the whole um, question of of, of Marcionism or of of putting a lower value on the Old Testament, I entirely reject because I place great and high value on the Old Testament. Uh, And in fact, I say this in the book that uh, among those who hold to this distinction that I'm talking about of uh, the believer having no obligation to the law, I have heard a very rich and deep teaching of typology out of the law and of how it points us to Christ. And so not only is it a record of God's faithfulness to his people, but it also points forward to the Lord Jesus. Um in all of the offerings that you find at the beginning of Leviticus, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and we have specific references in the New Testament where you find the anti-type identified there. So it is it is a rich source of uh typology and of pictures of the Lord Jesus in his self-giving sacrifice. Um and then a third way is uh the law as wisdom and this is something that the Brian Rosner is, is really good about pointing out is that the way paul quotes the law and the way he uses it uh can at first seem rather unexpected to us i'm thinking of the place uh for example in um first timothy where he uh, talks about not muzzling the ox when it treads out the grain and he's talking about remunerating uh those in full-time christian work right and so in its original context you wouldn't think that had anything to do with uh paying christian workers but paul repurposes it if you will as wisdom in the new testament um and so there's definitely a a wisdom use for the law even if it doesn't condemn us anymore even if it doesn't retain obligation um so that's that's how i see uh the believers uh relation to it and and use of it and on the other side I guess I'd say that the dangers uh, of of telling people that they are obligated to obey the law, I think, are, are a few. Some people uh, um, will try really hard to obey the law. And of course, they will fail because that's what that's what Scripture tells us, is that no one can keep the law. And so there's there's a real possibility of, of despair that you're just I'm not good at this. I can't do it. And it, it leads to a defeatist um christian life where you're trying to do something that i would argue you're not called to do and of course you're failing at doing it on the other side there are some people who have just a natural bent uh to uh to that and so if they have a, a good run at keeping the law if you will they say you know what i'm i'm pretty good at this and that of course will will yield pride and so that's, that's obviously not a good outcome either. So I think any way you look at it, if you tell believers that they are obligated to uh, keep the law, um, it's not faithful to Scripture and it's not a good outcome in the Christian life.
1: Well, Matt, we've taken up a lot of your time this afternoon to talk about this important new book. Before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment?
0: Sure. So actually, I, I have a book uh, coming out uh, next month, actually, from Lucid Books that is a, a bit different from what I've written thus far. It is decidedly evangelistic. It's called Losing Religion, Finding Jesus, Moving Beyond Cultural Christianity is the subtitle of it. And so um, it, it's a book to address uh, those who perhaps are churchgoers, uh, the those who um, have some familiarity with the Bible and with the teachings of Christianity, but really haven't, um, haven't made that step of being born again. They haven't, they haven't experienced new life in Christ. And so that was my history, uh, as a young person. And so I know there are a lot of people out there that, um, are in that position. And so I wanted to address some of their thoughts and provide some answers, so that'll be coming out in um, mid-October.
1: Very good. Remind us of the title there, Matt.
0: It is uh, Losing Religion, Finding Jesus, uh, Moving Beyond Cultural Christianity, and that's from Lucid Books.
1: Great. I look forward to seeing that in due course. Meantime, I'm going to say thank you very much for coming on to the show today to talk about your new book, If One Uses It Lawfully, The Law of Moses and the Christian Life, published by Whitfenstock in 2018. Thanks for your time, Matt, and take care.
0: Great. Thank you, Crawford.
1: And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.